Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. If you've been following along with us, we are in what, uh, chapter 22, and in the timeline of the Bible story, we are in what we call Holy Week. And so last week was the triumphant entry in chapter 21. We're about Tuesday, Wednesday-ish in this timeline of events um, leading up to Christ's crucifixion and his death. Um, we're Red Hills Church, so we don't always do things like every other church. So a lot of churches would do this during like Easter Sunday kind of time frame. We just chose to do it differently because we're Red Hills. So we're in the middle of Holy Week. Now, again, triumphal entry was last week. So that's Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It's at the end of his ministry. He knows his time is near. He knows he's leading up. There's a, only a few matter of days left. He can feel the burden of that on his shoulders. The tension between him and the Pharisees and the religious leaders is starting to grow. There's tension even between the, him and the crowds. And so this is a very interesting part of his ministry because his tone begins to shift. Who, how he talks to the Pharisees shifts, and we're going to get into that here in chapter 22 because it's, it's an abrupt change, and it's very necessary. So last week in chapter 21, Pastor Marshall walked us through a couple of things. One, the triumphant entry. Uh, Jesus was uh, cleansing the temple, so that's when he was flipping the tables, which is always fun to read. Uh, you had the cursing of the fig tree, and then you had two parables. Uh, one parable about the two sons and the tenants. And again, tension is growing between Jesus and the religious leaders. And what I want to do is kind of pick up right where Marshall left off last week. Because in chapter 21, at the end, uh, verse 43, it says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, he's speaking to the Pharisees and all of Israel, and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, he's talking about the cornerstone, um, is broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, I will crush him, or it will crush him, sorry. So this idea that Jesus kind of uh, caps off with at the end of 21, where there's a cornerstone, and Jesus is our cornerstone, and there's these two kind of conflicting ideas. One, you're either going to be broken by it, or you're going to be crushed by it. So I'm going to continue that thought as we continue in chapter 21, because if we humble ourselves before Scripture— the same option, same offer is made to us. Are we going to be broken by Scripture, by Jesus, or are we going to be crushed by it? Because our, my prayer today is that our hearts would be desire brokenness. And through that brokenness, we would have fruit, good works. So let's pick up in chapter 22, verse 1. Now, if this is your first time at Red Hills, the way we do it, we go verse by verse. We're going to read the entire chapter, not at one time, but we're going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, and then come back to the Scripture. Chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants telling or saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves 
have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So we're going to pause there for just a second. Um, as, we continue, as we go backwards, I'm going to just kind of set up the story here um, and go through the characters because there's a lot going on in this little, you know, 10 verses. Number one, um, the king in this story is God. I think that should be somewhat obvious in that. You have the son, who's a character. Uh, that would be Jesus. Uh, you have those who were invited to, some, to the wedding but did not come um, and said they were not worthy. Uh, then there's messengers or those servants who went out to call out to those in the streets. So the messengers in this story would probably likely be the disciples, the apostles, um, could also be angels. I've read a couple commentaries, there's some different opinion on that, but someone who goes out and proclaims a message to get people to come to a wedding. And then lastly, um, you have those in the streets. So if you, if you couple the two ideas that we just finished in chapter 21 and chapter 22, um, those who, uh, what did it say in 21, uh, it will be given to those who are producing fruits. That's 22, carrying on the same discussion, same idea. And those would be us. That's us, the Gentiles. Those who were not originally offered, but were offered a second time. So let's pick up in uh, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. So at the end of verse 10 there, it said that the wedding hall was filled with guests. So that's a good thing, but there's a problem, right? When the king shows up to the wedding, somebody's not wearing the proper attire. So verse 12, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What a heck of a set of scripture for Mother's Day, right? So let's just break that down for just a, little, for a second, right? In this parable, there's a king with an expectation. He has invited his guests and servants, and his expectation is they're going to follow his commands. And this expectation says, hey, come to the wedding feast. And it, on the other side of that is there are people who show up, and the expectation is they're going to be wearing the proper garments. They didn't show up to the wedding with jeans on, or they did show up to the wedding with jeans on, right? They were wearing the proper wedding garments. So a couple weeks ago, this reminded me of a couple weeks ago when we were uh, going to the Henley wedding, and we were, wife and I were getting um, ready to, to head out and drive to Panama City. And I remember turning to my wife, and yesterday, happy anniversary, we had our 17th year, and I was, I was getting dressed, and I was like, I said, babe, can I wear jeans to this wedding? Because it's like an hour and a half drive. I wanted to be comfortable. I didn't want to wear a suit. And she said this. And now, if you've, a 17, after 17 years, I get a pretty good read on my wife and how she responds to things. And her response was, sure. Now, guys, we know what that means, right? Sure is not, is, not, is not yes. We know what that means. It meant no. Do not wear jeans to this wedding. 
And I did not wear jeans to that wedding, right? So I was thinking about this. In ancient times, even though this is not explicitly said in this text, in ancient times, there was a practice where people would show up to a wedding and whatever attire they brought, and the king would actually provide garments for people to wear. So they would be appropriate. So there's two kind of contexts we can take from this. One, this guy who shows up with the wrong attire, he showed up to the wedding with the wrong attire for two reasons. One, either he showed up knowing he had to wear the proper attire, but decided not to do that. He wanted to wear whatever he wanted to wear. Or two, he showed up to the wedding, the king offered the clothes, and he rejected it. So what does this mean for us? In the kingdom of God, there is an expectation that the invited guests to this wedding party are wearing the proper garment. But in church, this is where it gets a little weird, right? When I start using terms like expectation, it gets a little weird. We don't like expectations in church. It feels weird. It feels worldly. So what we do in church is we take business practices we see like in my job, and I have to manage certain people. I don't use the same terminology that I use at my office that I do in church. We, we, we learn how to speak church. We use terms like spiritual growth instead of change. We say, you're being discipled, not mentored. Um, you tithe, we don't donate. Uh, you get loving admonishment and not harsh correction. And then we use words like commands and, instead of expectations. That just seems a little softer. But like with my kids, when I tell my children, go clean your room, there's a command there and an expectation that when I go back around to their room in about 30, 45 minutes, maybe shorter, that two things are happening. Either the room is clean or they're at least cleaning it. There's an expectation. And this king here has expectations as well. And the Bible is full of commands. If you don't like commands, you're probably in the wrong place. There's 613, 611 commands in the Old Testament law alone. And I researched this, and this depending on how you count them, there could be upwards to 400 to 500 more commands just in the New Testament alone. And these things cover like, do not be angry. That's a command. Do not be lustful. How we should handle marriage. Prayer, how we should pray and when we shouldn't pray. Who will be the first and who will be the last? How we should love others and, who, and what we should actually despise. That we should actually aim for perfection. To be holy. To seek righteousness. And that we should be servants. These are commands. These are expectations. But we don't like to say God expects anything from us. We'd rather say, I'm under grace. Right? And of course we are. Of course we're under grace. Christianity would be the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? If it was all about grace and no expectation to change. If it was just do whatever you want with life. Jesus died for your sins, and that's all that matters. And what you actually do with your life means nothing. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. Because the king says you must wear the proper attire to attend this wedding feast. And we don't get to say back to him, nah, I'm good. I'm going to wear jeans. I'm going to wear jean shorts, flip-flops, 
whatever the heck I want to wear, I'm going to wear my Crocs to your wedding. That's not how the kingdom of God works. And this is hard for some of us. It's hard for me because I'm not a rule follower. Don't give me a rule. Don't tell me to do anything because as soon as you tell me to do that thing, even I hadn't even been thinking about it, now I want to not do that thing or do that thing, however, you know, however it works. And from on the other side of that coin, there's a lot of us in here who really like rules. Like, give me a list of things I have to do, and I'm just so much better for it. Because if you don't tell me what the rules are, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with life. It's like the people who can't get from, like, you've lived in Tallahassee for 20 years or your whole life, and you still need GPS to get to Target because you like the rules. You like people to tell you where to go. And Jesus is saying here that this is a must. Jesus is saying that to be able to attend this wedding feast, you're in the hall, right? You've made it to the wedding, but to be able to get into the feast itself, you must be wearing the appropriate garment. There are no arguments. There's no negotiating. There's no ands or ifs or buts about it. I tell my kids all the time, I'm not negotiating here. And this is what Jesus is saying. So maybe you're asking, so what garments should I be wearing? If I'm going to have to attend this wedding, what should I be wearing? What's, what's the appropriate garment? So for starters, it's not your garment. I'm going to read a bunch of scripture here. I'm going to put my notes online after this. I'm not, we're not going to put it on the screen. So if you want to know these references, you can go back there and look. But Isaiah 64, 6 says this. Um, it says that we have become unclean and our righteousness is like polluted garments. Some translations say filthy rags. Mark 7, 20 through 21 says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of a heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Psalms 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born into iniquity. In sin did my mom, my mother, mother, happy Mother's Day, conceive me. I didn't think about that when I quoted that. That's funny. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short in the glory of God. So if all have sinned and sin corrupts and defiles our garments, then whose garments should we be wearing? So let's go back to Scripture. 60, uh, Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you. This is Paul begging on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Galatians 3, 27, For as many as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but, mean, but made alive in the Spirit. So, what garment should we be wearing? The answer is clear. The garment that we wear, the one that each and every single one of these people in this room and for all eternity must wear to get to the wedding feast, 
is Jesus' righteousness. It's Jesus alone. It's not yours, because they filthy. They dirty. There's no other way. And this is the very core of the gospel message. Even in a world, and I'm speaking, look, if you're like 30-something and above, maybe 40-something um, and above, you probably get this into, into your soul. But if you're like 35 and below, if you're like 15, to like, you are being attacked right now. The younger generations are being attacked right now at the very core of who they are. It's really brilliant what, this, what the, the devil, Satan, is doing right now because he's not worried so much about their outward actions, about sex, drugs, rock and roll, Man, he's attacking the very identity of who you are as a person. If you're a young person listening to me today, hear me. It's not what they say who you are. It's what God says who you are. And in a world that tells you it's your choice, you can decide. It's up to you. God is who you say he is. He can be a tree. He could be this cup of water. It doesn't matter what it is. You can decide. God is love, so everything goes. Everyone's going to get to heaven. Because that's not a God that I would serve. That is a false gospel. And it's designed to draw you away from the one and only truth that is Jesus Christ. And those people that show up to the wedding wearing their own filthy garments, Jesus says it right there. I'm not saying it. Jesus says it. They're going to be cast into the utter darkness. Because why? The path to heaven is narrow, and the gate to hell is wide. Many are called, but few are chosen. Listen to me. There's only one path, and it's not yours. All right, so let's pick up in chapter 22, verse 15. Paying taxes to Caesar. Ha <laughs> ha, this is going to be fun. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent out disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were a group of people. They weren't really religious leaders on the same level as the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the teachers of the law. They were those who followed King Herod. They were like his servants. So they came along with the Pharisees in this, this moment trying to see if they can, you know, kind of gang up on Jesus, which is always a bad idea. Um, and he says, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anybody's opinion, for, the, for you are not swayed by appearances. I love that part because it's like when my kids try to get me to like give them like candy or, or ice cream at the end of the night or stay up late. They kind of come to me with sweet talk. And I'm like, N I know what you're doing. I, I invented that trick, right? And then my parents before me invented that trick. You're not, you're not special, right? And Jesus is, Jesus is not fooled either. He says this in 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? You know, it's Jesus' tone. He, he does not have time. He's flipped the tables, right? He is not messing around any longer with these fools, <laughs> literally. Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. If you can go ahead and put that, well, let's finish this and then we'll put the image on. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. You can go ahead and put that image on. This is a denarius. I wanted to show you this image because, again, we didn't grow up in 30 AD, right? So we have no idea why Jesus 
wanted a denarius to be shown. And I find this fascinating. So denarius was a common coin um, in the Roman Empire, and it was, it was about the, the cost of a, a single day's worth of wages for the average laborer. And on one side of the coin, it was an inscription. Of, it says, Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus. Did you, you catch that? Who is the son of God? The only divine. Jesus. On the other side of the coin is the goddess Pax, and she was the goddess of peace. Who is the prince of peace? Jesus. The irony is just too thick, right? And I can just imagine Jesus saying, give me the coin, let me look at the coin, and he's got it in his hands, and he's just flipping, I, just, I could just see him chuckle. <laughs> You've, you're missing it, right? And so what he says here is this word render, because what's at stake here, right, is they know that the Pharisees and the teachers, they know that depending on Jesus' answer here, he's going to make two groups very angry. If he supports the taxes, then he's going to anger the, the Jewish crowd, the one that was crying Hosanna just a few days earlier. But if he says pay taxes to Caesar because that's okay, then he angers Rome right? Or, I'm sorry, don't pay taxes. Don't pay taxes to Rome. Then he's going to make Rome very angry because now he's causing a rebellion. So they think they got him. And his response is just like Jesus always does. He diffuses it with this perfect statement that says, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God the things that are God. So this word render here is an interesting choice of words. Now we are reading from the ESV, but if you maybe are reading along and you're reading from another version, you may see the word give. Um, I've researched this word. Render is a much better translation because the Greek word here, apodidomi, means to have an obligation to pay some sort of payment or debt. I can give you a lot of things out of my free will, but if I'm obligated to pay something, then I'm rendering that thing. That's why I believe the render is a better term here. So what does this mean for us? I'm not going to stand up here and make a political statement about taxes. Pay your taxes. Don't go to jail. That's the first thing. Number two, Jesus is saying we owe something to God. There's something that we must render to him. So you may be asking, if you just heard what I was talking about with the gospel, that's in Christ alone, you may be asking, is that contrary to the gospel message? I thought my righteousness, my, my, my salvation was based on his righteousness alone. That's true. The gospel is true. You cannot earn your salvation. There is nothing you can do or say, or you can't come to church enough. You can't get up here and lead people in worship enough. You can't pray. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. That is true. Because if it was true, we wouldn't need Jesus on the cross. If the law was good enough to save you, we don't need Jesus, right? So while that's 100% true, there is an expectation of self-sacrifice built into the Christian walk. And so, again, you may ask, what is this sacrifice? What is this debt that we owe? It is our life for the one Jesus gave up for us. Our life is the sacrifice. Because what Jesus did on the cross is he paid a ransom. There was, there was something that was owed based upon the sin in our lives, and Jesus' life paid that ransom. Uh, Mark 10, 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 4, 18-19, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, and not with 
perishable things such as silver or gold. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. It's the only way, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so our response to this is then, should be at least, to lay down our lives as sacrifices. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. John 12.25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And you're like, well, that's just all New Testament. Okay. Psalms 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Look, if our response to the beauty that is the cross is, well, I'm here at church. Isn't that good enough? I serve in a team for like 20 minutes once a month and say hello to people. I tithe a couple percents. I give to charities. I listen to Christian music and not excellent one and 1.5 on the drive to work. Look at my sacrifice, God. Isn't it worth it? Then what we've done right then is we've just entered into pharisaical behavior because the Pharisees believed that adherence to a law, to a set of rules, was equal to righteousness and holiness. That's what they were. And this is what Jesus is coming up against. They thought following rules was enough. And we have to avoid falling into the same trap. We have to avoid giving the bare minimum effort. And that's what so many of us do. We live in the average What is the bare minimum thing that I have to do to say that I'm a Christian, to make other people think that I'm a Christian, when there's actually nothing really happening deep inside of us? When we worship God, it's just lip service. When we're praying, it's just lip service. There's not actual physical change happening deep inside. We're checking off the boxes. What we need to be asking is, is our life worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And that's weird. I know it almost sounds anti-gospel. but The scriptures are clear. Our lives are supposed to be sacrifices. It makes me think about the scene at the end of Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen Saving Private Ryan yet, I'm about to spoil it. I'm sorry. It's like 30 years old, guys. What can I do for you? So at the very end of the movie, the character played by Matt Damon, he's an old man, and he returns to the shores of Normandy, and he finds himself at a cross, a gravestone, and he crumbles before it. And he's crying, and he asked his family, his wife, and his kids, was my life good? Was I a good man? Because just a few scenes earlier, I know it's a movie, but it's a good analogy. And a couple of scenes earlier, there's a man played by Tom Hanks, and he's just been shot. He's going to die. And he gave up his life so this Saving Private Ryan guy could live. And he tells him, earn this. Earn the right to be able to go home and spend the rest of your life with your family and friends. Because I'm not going to see my wife ever again. I'm not going to be able to cut her, see her cut roses. I'm dying for you. And sometimes our response to the same thing Jesus did for us is, thanks, bro. This bump. High five. 
when really we should be asking the difficult question is, does our life reflect someone who is broken by the cornerstone, someone who sees the cross and crumbles before it at the weight of its beauty? Chapter 22, verse 28. Did I skip? Hold on. I think I have this wrong in my notes. Sadducees, yeah, chapter uh, chapter 22, verse 23. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Now, the Sadducees, they pop up every once in a while in Scripture. Um, They are most likely, a lot of times, linked with the Pharisees as the religious leaders of the time. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they kind of differed on multiple points. The Sadducees, um, the best that we can tell, believed that um, in nothing is set apart from the law. So they only would follow the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Anything outside of that was just good reading. So this is why they bring up this question to Jesus about the resurrection. And it says, verse 24, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. And after them, all the women died. In the resurrection, they ask. I thought you didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay, whatever. We'll just skip over that for a second. Um, Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? for they all had her. What a ridiculous analogy. Like, seven brothers, and there's a woman who's married, and they all die, and all the wives die, and at the very end, it's like, you couldn't come up with a better question for Jesus. This is one you came up with, but okay, this is what we're left with. And so, again, the Sadducees, they, they differed in the Pharisees, that they observed nothing apart from the law, and then here you can see what Matthew says, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that your soul continued after life. So this is naturally why they bring up the resurrection. And this explains Jesus' response here, right? This is where it gets a little brutal. Verse 29, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. That is like Old Testament smack talk. That's like, you know that gif you see of the guy who played, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but he's at, a, he's at a, um, like a, some sort of like field and he's walking and he grabs the lawn chair and just pops it out and sits it down because he's really excited because I can see the crowd around Jesus going, oh, it's about to get good. Because you just said to a bunch of people who are teachers of the law, you are wrong. So what I encourage you all to do is the next time you disagree with Marshall on anything, don't do this to me, but do it to Marshall. Um, walk up to him after service. Let me know when you're going to do this. Walk up to him after service and tell him you're wrong for you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. I just want to be standing around that moment so I can videotape it. That's all. Just let me know because that would be hilarious. I just wanted you to think of the amount of, I want to use the right term here, gumption it took Jesus to say this to these people. They were already looking for reasons to kill him. 
and he just gave them all the ammo they needed. So let's break down that first part. You need to know the scriptures. The issue with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the reason why this was so how, you know, astonishing is because what he's saying to them is like, you're all head knowledge and no heart knowledge. You've got no heart. You understand the scriptures. He's not saying that they don't know the scriptures. He's saying you don't know the scriptures on a deeper level. They were all brain and no heart. This is why they missed the whole point of the marriage in the first place. Because marriage, God gave us marriage as a symbol of the covenant relationship that we have between God and us. It's a symbol. They, when I say they, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, they never intended for marriage to happen for eternity. And I hate to tell you this, if you were taught this as a, at, a, at a church, you're not going to be married to your spouse in heaven. And if you want to argue with me, argue with Jesus. He says they're never going to be married or have marriage in heaven. It was temporary. So they had the knowledge, they just missed the heart. So the second part of that statement, you don't know the power of God. Whew. He's saying to the Sadducees, that by denying the resurrection, they had a very small view of God. They didn't even think that God, the guy who spoke the world into existence, could raise someone from the dead. And why? Because if they're, they only adhere to anything that was strictly in the law, if you go back, I challenge you to do this, read Genesis through Deuteronomy, you will not find a single person who was raised from the dead in the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus is saying here, just wait until Sunday. You catching what I'm saying? If they don't even believe in the resurrection, their minds are going to be blown on Sunday when they see him walk in the streets of Jerusalem. Because they watched the man die on a cross. And when they see him on Sunday, they're going to go, wait, wait a minute, I didn't think God had that kind of power. So he's blasting them on two levels. One, right, they don't understand the power of God. But then what I love about his response about the son, he says, um, not the son, but he says, did you not hear what it said by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So these guys, Sadducees, they didn't believe anything other than the law. He's not quoting David, which talks about the, not a resurrection, but what happens after the death. Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel, Proverbs. He's not quoting any of the major amount of prophets. He's quoting Ezekiel 3.6. He's using their own theology against them. He's quoting the moment that Moses interacts with the burning bush. That's why he says, did you not hear what God said? And what he's saying is, there is nothing more important than the resurrection. This is why I believe Paul, who was a Pharisee who disagreed with the Sadducees, and someone who would have been very well acquainted with the argument between the two groups. Because if you keep reading your Bible and you get into Acts, I think it's chapter 22, Paul is about to get beat down by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He's brought before a group, and he throws out this argument about the resurrection, and then all of a sudden the Sadducees and the Pharisees start arguing, and Paul slips out the back door. He was well acquainted with this argument. And this is why I think he says this about the resurrection and the gospel in Romans. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
Are you, are you, are you catching this? So the resurrection, what is our takeaway from this? One, don't ever, 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 ever get into a Bible debate with Jesus. You're going to lose every time. Number two, there may not be anything more important to the Christian walk than a strong biblical view of the resurrection. And not just Jesus' resurrection, but ours as well. It's why Paul calls it our blessed hope. The resurrection, the second coming, is what time and time again Paul and the New Testament writers urge us to hold fast to. It's our hope when all things seem to be lost and there is no hope. It's a belief that one day Christ rose from the dead and one day he will return to make all things new. And in the meantime, I love what the song says, he is resurrecting us. He is taking us from death to life. It's the beauty of baptism. So, don't be like the Pharisees, I mean, and the Sadducees. Don't be all heart knowledge, I mean, don't be all head knowledge. Have a little heart, too. Find beauty in the Scriptures and, re- and just cling to the resurrection. All right, let's pick up in verse 34. The greatest commandment. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, oh boy, it's going to be, when lawyers get involved, you know, this is the last stop, this is the last ditch effort. They asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And there's a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, the whole, I'm sorry, the, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. The amazing part about here, this little interaction between Jesus and this lawyer, is how simple the question is. What's the greatest commandment? And what's even more amazing is how simple Jesus' response is. Up until now, a lot of his responses are kind of like, where did you get that one, Jesus? That's not really what we saw in the law. How can you explain that one to me? They come back after a couple of days, and the disciples would be like, can you explain that one, Jesus? Because it went right over our head. Now, this is about as straight down, like, this is like 101 theology, you know, uh, Jewish theology. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, right? Why? Because it's the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If you were to ask a hundred rabbis during Jesus' time the same question, they would have all said, yes, it's this, it's this one. And Jesus, though, in his recollection, is he changes might or mind to might. Now, Jesus was there when Moses spoke those words to the people, right? So he's not just changing Scripture. I think what he's doing here is he's doing what we're talking about, what we just talked about, is he's changing that head knowledge the might, right, or your mind, and he's changing it to might, your actions and deeds. He's saying that, look, there's more to me and loving me and and your devotion to me than just your actions. So Jesus, again, he says this, there's a second part to this, and he says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Now this comes from Leviticus 19.18. So he's not just pulling something out of thin air. He's linking two different commandments together, and he says one is like the other. We need to be careful 
how we apply love your neighbor as yourself. We talk about love in church a lot. Talk about how we should love others. We agree with that. But why we should be careful here, because unfortunately, many of us have a perverted view of love. I don't mean kinky perverted. I mean corrupted, distorted. Many of us in this room right now don't know what love is. We don't know what we've, we don't, we don't even feel we've ever been loved. Or we've never felt love. We don't know even how, how to express it. We think love is something you see in a romantic comedy. We see a broken marriage and think that's love and say, if that's it, I don't want that. We think acceptance of whatever lifestyle someone chooses is the greatest sign of love. Because why? God is love. Let me put this clearly. You will not love others well if you do not understand the love of God for you. So, if you're one person in this room and you struggle with love, you've been hurt in your past, you don't know what it feels like, and you feel like love is a dirty word, let me give you three helpful tips to redefine this. One, you should redefine your definition of love, but it needs to be based upon the Bible and not the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is known as the love chapter, and I can't think of any better place to start if we're going to redefine love. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 7. And Paul says this, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What does that sound like? Sounds like the Pharisees. It's like the disconnect. They were head knowledge. They had no actual love, so they were a clanging gong or a clanging cymbal. So then Paul then just defines love. Now you've maybe heard this said before, where God is love, Jesus is love, so you place love here for Jesus. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to do that today. I want you to understand what God sees love as. Because this is the Bible, the biblical definition of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is how God loves you. He is patient with you. His, his love is not envious, but he's an envious God. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not irritable or resentful. This is how God loves us. And so what we should be doing then is applying that definition of love to our own self over and over and over and over and over and over again until it gets down deep into our core and it redefines who we are. Because if you can get that on that level, then what you do is you start loving people in that way. 
Because you're not going to be envious. You're not going to be rude. You won't be impatient. Even though it's hard, because <laughs> some people make it very difficult to love them. But this is if we love ourselves this way, the natural reaction that will come out of us is love in this way. And then when we start looking for love, these are, this is our definition. And if people don't love us this way, then they don't have the love of God either. And if the love of God is not in you, then you don't have love. You don't have God. So what does this moment between Jesus and the religious leaders teach us about the kingdom of heaven? Number one, that devotion to God is more than just action, our mites. It includes our soul, the very, our inner being, and our mind. Loving others is like or in equal proportion to devotion to God. So to love God means you love others, and to love others means you love God. And you can't hate someone and say you love God. And you can't hate God and say you love others. It doesn't work that way. So let's pick up, and we're going to finish up here in chapter 22, verse 41 through 46. Flip back. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Oh, boy. So they've been asking Jesus questions, and now it's his turn. Oh, how the turntables. Anybody? Yeah, some people got that. All right. So what do you think about the Christ, he asks. Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. In this, and he said to them, how is then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Again, now it's Jesus' turn to ask the questions. And they were silent. And they were like, I'm done with this guy. <laughs> I can't win. Every time I ask a question, he beats me back. I'm not even trying anymore. He's evaded every single one of their traps and questions and attempts to bring division among his followers. This would actually be, this moment right here is the last time that Jesus would interact with the Pharisees and religious leaders until his trial in the temple. Because in the next chapter, he turns to his disciples and the crowds, and he gives seven woes to the religious leaders. Next week is a wild ride. I, ex I expect amazing things next week. No pressure, Marshall. But this shows, this little interaction here shows the difference between a head knowledge person, leader, and a shepherd. Their questions were an attempt to trap Jesus, to trip him up, and discredit him as the Messiah. They wanted to protect their power, not glorify the power of God. Jesus' question was meant to reveal to them the condition of their heart. His question, this response, verse 44, is out of Psalms 110, which just so happens to be the most quoted Old Testament scripture in all the New Testament. And it's David saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Now those two lords, one is capitalized, all four letters of Lord, that's Yahweh. The other Lord is Adonai. So he's saying, Lord said to my Lord. God saying to God. So he's using their own logic behind them. 
He's using his own logic against them, sorry. And so at the very core of the Pharisees' issue, at the very core of what their problem was with Jesus, is they did not want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But honestly, neither did the crowd. Because remember what the Pharisees said to uh, the crowd at the very end of chapter 21? What they were afraid of? I'll go back and read it. And they, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowd because they held him to be a prophet. Not the Christ, a prophet. So this rebuke that Jesus is giving the Pharisees also applies to the crowds. Because think about it, the same people who were just a few days earlier screaming out and crying out Hosanna, and a few days will be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They weren't looking for a Messiah, a Christ. They were just looking at him as a prophet. So he poises this question to them, and he says, what do you think about the Christ? And I feel, this is me closing, I feel this is the same question that we should be asking ourselves today. It's a personal question. What do you think about the Christ? Not what your mama says Christ is, not what you, I say he is, not what you, your friends feel about the Christ, or what some social media influencer on Instagram or wherever you go to get your information says about who Jesus is. Because at the end of the day, we will all stand before God and give an account for our own lives and who we think Jesus is and how we lived out his gospel and how we lived out his love. It's not going to be based upon somebody else's faith. It's going to be based on yours alone. And what Jesus is getting at is that what he's trying to get the Pharisees to say and what he's saying here in verse 44 is he is the Christ. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the one the prophet spoke about. And what he came to do was give his people, his followers, the invited guest, the proper wedding garments. He came to show them that he is the God of the living and not the dead. He came to provide the freedom they so desperately needed. But there again, they were missing it. They were crying, Hosanna one day and crucify him in just a matter of days. So I ask this question again. What do, you th- what do you think about the Christ? Because the scriptures are clear. The wages of sin are death. The path to righteousness is narrow, but the path to hell is wide. And then there's only one way you're going from the hall to the wedding feast, and it's by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So this is the warning that we're all given today. It says those who show up to the wedding, wearing their own filthy garments, are going to be cast into the outer darkness. So you must decide. Everybody sitting in this room right now can no longer say from this day forth they didn't know. You have to make a decision today. What do you say about the Christ? Amen? Amen. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.